0: Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman athlete coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I'm recording this at what appears to be the beginning of a global pandemic of a new novel coronavirus, COVID-19, a virulent and much more dangerous version of one of the viruses responsible for the common cold. What's known about this virus and the illness this causes is still being fleshed out, but the early stages of panic are pretty easy to read in the news media and in communities that have been stricken thus far. I know that this isn't necessarily a subject that you might expect to hear about on a triathlon-related podcast, but the reality is that given the global threat that this virus poses, there is a very real risk that in the short term, our way of life may be significantly impacted, and this could mean the cancellation of events, such as major multi-sport races. The reason for this is that as opposed to, say, algae or sharks that pose real but mostly hypothetical risks to triathletes, the novel coronavirus is very real and has very significant risks. Consider the last major global pandemic with significant mortality to hit the globe. The Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918 and 19 was incredibly contagious and had a mortality rate of 2.5% compared to the usual mortality of influenza of 0.1%. Worse, mortality for the Spanish flu was very high among young healthy adults, about 20 times more lethal than seen before or ever since. All in all, 18 million people died worldwide from that flu. COVID-19, like the Spanish flu, is incredibly contagious and has a lot of properties that make it ripe for a pandemic. It remains infective on inert surfaces for a long period of time, and it causes asymptomatic infections, allowing itself to be spread unknowingly. In two important ways, though, COVID-19 differs from Spanish flu. First, it has a lower mortality rate, although this is still coming into focus. Thus far, it appears to be just under 2%. And second, it has not shown a predilection for being particularly lethal in young, healthy adults. In fact, the vast majority of deaths have been in the elderly and in those with pre-existing diseases, particularly those affecting the heart and lungs. So what can we take from this and what can we do about it? Well, clearly the idea of containing this illness is really just a fantasy, and it's only a matter of time before Europe and North America are significantly impacted. In addition, this virus may be here to stay. Unlike influenza, that has a very seasonal pattern with a rapidly mutating genome that causes the illness to change significantly from year to year, coronaviruses have more stable genetics and tend to linger within the population, emerging with much more virulence in winter months, but never really fading away completely. My suspicion is that for this coming year, we're likely to see some pretty big changes to our ways of life in order to try and prevent widespread illness and mortality, while researchers work on a potential vaccine or more effective treatments. Aside from the economic impacts that the virus is having and will likely continue to have for some time, I suspect that we're going to see some other social changes. Shaking hands, for example, and greeting is likely to become a thing of the past. I bet that going to work or school with a cold will finally be recognized as a bad idea and no longer be considered acceptable. And we may see some changes to screening for air travel and large gatherings like triathlons or even the Olympics, which may end up being canceled in attempts to mitigate the spread. In the end, though, all of these things will be temporary and minor fixes. Unless a vaccine is developed or the virus mutates into a less lethal form, we're unlikely to avoid some kind of global spread and impact to our lives, at least in the short term. How we adapt societally will determine how large and how long-lasting these impacts will be. For now... Be careful to wash your hands, a lot, and be wary of those around you who seem to be ill. You can skip the surgical masks, though. They're not particularly helpful. On the show today... The final episode in my exploration of the issues and controversies raised by the Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. On today's podcast, I'm joined by my brother, Peter Sankoff. Peter is a professor of law at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada, an author of several books on animal law, and is one of the founding members of Animal Justice, a Canadian advocacy group for animal welfare. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the film and why we should care about the ethics and morality of meat consumption. With the weather seemingly about to warm up and spring right around the corner, Reels for Wheels has its final episode of the season with a traditional end-of-the-year show featuring several selections to watch during your recovery rides. But before all of that, as always, I have a medical question to answer. Beet juice, in all of its forms, has been advocated as a supplement to enhance sports performance for quite some time. There are some pretty good theoretical reasons why this root vegetable could do this, but is there science to bear those theories out? Well, I take a look. Right now. Ah! Beets and beet juice has been suggested to enhance sports performance for quite some time now. And medical science has looked at beets for a lot of different indications, and the root vegetable has indeed shown promise in things like lowering blood pressure and potentially for improving chronic inflammatory conditions. Well, there's a large body of evidence looking at beets and sports performance, and that's going to be the subject of the medical question for today. The issue is whether or not beets and the various different products that offer beet juice concentrates can actually enhance cardiorespiratory endurance. Now, when we refer to cardiorespiratory endurance, we're referring to any activity related to the need for ATP synthesis or adenosine triphosphate synthesis and its metabolism to produce energy. That metabolism and the synthesis of ATP require oxygen in the metabolic processes. So if beet juice is going to have an impact, its impact is going to be in enhancing that synthesis and metabolism. Now, the limiters for cardiorespiratory endurance in most individuals are maximum oxygen uptake at the cellular level, which is known as VO2 max, ventilatory thresholds, or the ability to take in oxygen effectively from the atmosphere, and energy efficiency or economy at the cellular level. Beetroot juice contains abundant inorganic nitrate that gets converted to nitrite by bacteria principally in the mouth and to a lesser extent in the gut. After being absorbed, This uh, chemical circulates in the bloodstream, and in tissues with low levels of oxygen, such as in hard-working muscle, it gets converted again to a chemical with the formula NO, or nitric oxide. Now, nitric oxide is a potent vasodilator and tends to act to increase oxygen delivery to tissues where it's most needed. Additional physiological benefits of nitric oxide include improved mitochondrial efficiency and glucose uptake in muscle, and enhanced muscle contraction and relaxation processes. And other researchers have reported that nitric oxide can act as an immunomodulator and stimulates gene expression and mitochondrial biogenesis. So there have been studies by very many researchers around the world to look at the effects of beetroot juice as a provider of nitrate, which then gets converted to nitric oxide, to see whether or not all of these different theoretical benefits have actually been shown to have an effect in improving cardiorespiratory endurance. In one such study, and most of the studies I'm going to cite come from an excellent review article that I found in the medical literature and that will be referenced in the show notes, a study in trained cyclists found that beetroot juice supplementation could actually improve performance by just under 1% in a 50-mile test. And this is a fairly significant amount when you look at improvements in overall performance of 05 to 2% being considered fairly significant clinically. So significant increases in this particular study of cyclists were seen in efficiency measured as watts per liter of VO2 max, and were observed principally in the last 10 miles of the test. And these improvements were associated with a decrease in time required to travel the distance of 50 miles. In other words, cyclists could produce more power for the same amount of oxygen consumption than they could without beet juice, and they did this late in the time trial. Another study aimed to assess efficiency on a 40-minute test at submaximal intensity, again in cyclists, this time looking at 20 minutes at 50% VO2 max, followed by a 20-minute test at 70% VO2 max, and this was done sequentially. A decrease here in VO2 with improved efficiency was also observed when the cyclists were given beetroot juice supplementation. But here, the results didn't reach statistical significance, so it's unclear whether or not the results were actually true. Interestingly, immediately after this 40-minute sub-threshold test, they put the cyclists back on the ergometer and had them go at 90% of their threshold for as long as they possibly could. And here, beet juice was found to lead to a 16% improvement in the amount of time till exhaustion. So while beet juice doesn't seem to give much of a benefit, at least in this study, to submaximal efforts, it does, once again, as we saw in the first study, seem to give some improvement when cyclists are asked to uh, give a really high-intensity effort, and it does so late in the overall period of exercise. So these findings make us suspect that beetroot juice might have an effect increasing performance in prolonged cycling events that require alterations in relative intensity from moderate to high VO2 max, which is pretty characteristic of the stages of cycling races, but not necessarily characteristic for long-distance Ironman or half-Ironman type events. In a different study, Experienced athletes tested the effect of supplementation with beetroot juice on time to exhaustion at intensities of 60, 70, 80, and 100% peak power. And here, athletes were able to maintain the prescribed intensities for longer when they supplemented with beet juice than without, but with a fair amount of overlap between the two groups, suggesting that the effects were not statistically significant and therefore leaving us with uncertainty as to whether or not the results from beet juice were really uh, uh, important or not. In a study looking at runners, uh, runners were supplemented with beet juice and asked to run a five-kilometer time trial, uh, seven days apart, once without beet juice supplementation and once with. And while there was no difference in the overall time to run the 5K, there was improvements in the latter stages of the, of the time trial. The last 1.1 miles tended to be run slightly faster when beet juice was on board than without, suggesting once again that High-intensity efforts could be improved late in the activity, but that overall, there was no significant improvement. And similar improvements have been seen in submaximal output in swimmers. So studies show variable and inconclusive results when we look at overall endurance. And similarly, there's been variable and inconclusive results when they look specifically at where in the cells beetroot juice has its effects. I mentioned earlier that uh, the mitochondria is where beetroot juice and nitric oxide is, uh, is theorized to have its major effects on metabolism. And most of the studies that have looked at mitochondria don't show consistent results in terms of either gene expression or in the numbers of mitochondria that are seen in cells after getting beetroot juice, which would translate to higher lactate thresholds. Beet juice has also not been shown to improve performance in runners at altitude, which is interesting because at altitude, there's lower levels of oxygen, and one would expect that nitric oxide could potentially have some impact. Now, some studies have suggested improvement in performance at simulated high altitudes, but those uh, studies have been inconsistent, and again, simulated altitude is not the same as actually being at altitude. It's important to note that studies have not been really consistent in the effects overall, uh, both in terms of overall endurance and also in terms of actual performance when it comes to cycling, running, or swimming, but that there seems to be the most consistency when looking at high outputs. So if you were going to translate this to triathlon, for example, I think that one could expect to see some kind of impacts from beetroot juice if you're doing short, Shorter course, very high intensity events, but if you're doing longer course events where the intensity level's not gonna be turned up so high and where you're not gonna be really dialing it up to like 90% of your VO2 max late in a race, such as Ironman or Half Ironman where you don't wanna be doing that, beetroot juice hasn't really been shown to be all that effective. Now, one of the important things to note when looking at all of the studies on beetroot juice is that while not all of the studies show benefits, Some of this discrepancy may be due to the types of beet juice that's being used because the dosage and the protocols being used across the studies are not consistent. Uh, Furthermore, the duration of time that the beet juice is taken and the amount of time before exercise that the beet juice is taken also seems to change and seems to be very important. It isn't so much that the beetroot juice that matters, but rather the concentration of nitrates within that juice. And many of the beetroot juice supplements that are available on the market right now are actually concentrates in an attempt to maximize the amount of nitrates in smaller quantities. Think of some of the beet juice shots that you can find out there. What those are is just beetroot juice that's been distilled down into a much more concentrated form in order to maximize the amount of nitrate within it. Now, the actual amount of beetroot juice that's needed remains pretty unclear because there's been so much variability across the studies. But what does seem to be clear is when it should be taken and for how long. To be effective, beetroot juice supplementation needs to happen for at least a week before an event. You can't brush your teeth before or for a little while after taking the products because the bacteria in the mouth are so important for converting the nitrate to nitrite, the first step in the process of getting to nitric oxide. Now beetroot juice supplements have to be taken 60 to 90 minutes before an activity because it takes that long for them to have an effect, and the duration of the effect remains unclear. None of the studies have really looked at that. Beetroot juice supplements that skip the mouth, in other words, those that are in pill or capsule form, are likely to be less effective because they don't get exposed to the mouth bacteria required to make that first step in conversion. But there's no published science to confirm this. All of the science on beet juice is on products that are not in pill form. Now, you need to be aware if you're going to take beet juice, it does cause significant changes in, well, there's no easy way to say this and no casual or polite way to say this. It's going to change your pee and your poop and it's gonna change it quite dramatically. Uh, I have, as an emergency physician, seen several people come to me uh, terrified after drinking beet juice that uh, they were bleeding uh, either from their gut or from their kidneys. And the fact of the matter is that beets are notorious for causing red pee and red poop. So don't be too shocked uh, the first time this happens to you. So in conclusion, beet juice does appear to have some positive effects on endurance athletes, but uh, a lot remains unclear. How big are those effects? How consistent are they? What kinds of events are they really going to be seen in? And how much beet juice do you really need? And probably most importantly, how long are the effects good for? We know they seem to show up 60 to 90 minutes after drinking the beet juice, but if they're only going to last about 20 minutes, then is it really useful if you're running a triathlon that's going to last, say, two, two and a half hours like an Olympic? I think one thing that is clear to me from reading the research is, as I said earlier, if you're going to use beet juice, it's probably most efficient and most useful for shorter course events where you're going to be uh, exerting yourself at higher levels of intensity. For the moderate levels of intensity over much longer courses like half and full Ironman's, I'm not entirely convinced that beet juice really has a role. Still, it's not going to hurt. And if you want to incorporate beet juice into your diet, then by all means do so, especially if you're an older individual and one with hypertension. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, email it to me at tri-doc at icloud.com. For my regular interview segment of the podcast, I'm going to continue with my series, taking a deeper dive into some of the questions raised by the Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. If you haven't seen the film or heard the first interviews in this series, I'd urge you to do so, though it's not necessary before listening to this one, as each of them can stand on their own. My guest for this segment is someone with whom I have a longstanding relationship. He is a leader both nationally and on the world stage on the legal issues related to animal rights and welfare, and he just so happens to be my brother. Peter Sankoff is a professor and associate dean at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law. He's also the author, co-author, or co-editor of eight books, including Animal Law in Australasia, A New Dialogue, and Canadian Perspectives on Animals and the Law. Peter has published numerous peer-reviewed articles on the substantive criminal law, criminal procedure, animal law, evidence, and legal education. In addition to his work at the Faculty of Law, Peter is Associate Counsel for the BATOS Law Group in Edmonton, doing primarily appellate work on criminal law-related matters, and has appeared before the Supreme Court of Canada on three separate occasions. He's also on the Board of Directors for Animal Justice, an advocacy group working to enhance the law in relation to animals, and is the co-host of the Paw & Order podcast, which won a clubby for the Best Niche blog slash podcast in 2018. In 2015, Peter represented Animal Justice as lead counsel before the Supreme Court of Canada in the course of R versus DLW, which was the first time an animal advocacy group had ever appeared before Canada's highest court. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Hello. Thanks for having me on. So, Pete, you've seen the movie. Uh, what in your mind did Game Changers get right and what do you think they get wrong?
1: So I obviously can't comment as much or as strongly on the health aspects of uh, what Game Changers talks about, which is obviously about the first three quarters of the movie. I mean, the primary focus is on um, obviously how vegan um, living can help your health and help you recover. And, and and I'll just comment very briefly on that. I'm not quite the vegan athlete that you are, but uh, I, I, I have been doing weight training for a long time, and I think what they get the most right is they dispel the idea that if you don't um, – you know, eat animal protein, you can't make strength gains. And I just know from my own personal experience, rather than any medical um, science or any medical study, that that's just not true. The truth is, I've been, you know, weightlifting pretty regularly since I was a a teenager. And I always ate meat right up until I was about 30, 31, 32 years old. And the truth is, my biggest strength gains in terms of muscle related uh, weightlifting have come in my 30s. 40s, and even up to the age of 50. And that's just because I found absolutely the idea that you can't get protein is the biggest myth out there. It's just so false and flawed. Um, And it comes along with it. You can't get B12, and you can't get iron and all these things. And again, I just know from my personal experience that those things just are completely false. I've never had um, any health-related issues uh, arising from being vegan, and I've been vegan now for uh, 15 years. So that, in terms of the health stuff, that's my only experience. With it. I mean, I can't speak to muscle recovery and this idea that being vegan somehow gives you magical recovery powers. Like, I only wish that were true. Um, I've had several injuries to my muscles and I've never felt that I healed any faster because I'm vegan. So that was, that was news to me anyway. Um, in that aspect, in the second part of the film, really in the it's really in only in the last 10 to 15 minutes of the film that I, I really felt that they looked at the moral and ethical issues of being vegan, which it, are the reasons I became vegan. I didn't do it for any health-related reason. So I don't, I, in fact, when I argue for veganism, I never make health claims, uh, partly because I think some of the claims are equivocal and I think some of the pl- claims are unproven and I look forward to hearing what you have to say about uh, some of the game-changing health related claims because some of them struck me as um, I would say on the optimistic side. So that's what I thought of them. But great, if they're true. Uh, My my view is that uh, there are are very strong reasons uh, to go vegan that have nothing to do with health. And I think in the last bit of the film, they very briefly touched on the moral case and the environmental case, which are both strong cases um, for animals. So in that sense, I think they get it right. But I think they underplay that aspect of the equation.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, And and just to touch briefly on the health aspects, they they, uh... That was one of the things that kind of bothered me about the film. I mean, I'm coming at it similar to you. I agree with the premises of where they're coming from, but
1: they overstated.
0: Yeah, <laughs> very much overstated. They cherry picked the science. Yeah, they, that's what I
1: thought too. They
0: used a lot of graphical representations, like the one Which that thought, really. Yeah. yeah, the one that stuck to me, stuck in my mind, was where they uh, showed um, they showed a graphic as as the narrator spoke and said, you know, oh, there's a three times in incidence mm-hmm. of uh, colon cancer, and they showed this mm-hmm. sort of chart which sort of like you know tripled in size. But what they don't tell you is that the incidence of colon cancer goes from something like you know point three percent to 0.9 percent. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I, I could see that. I, I was very skeptical, as you could tell just from listening to my opening remarks of some of the opening stuff. Not Not that I don't think some of it's true. Certainly with respect to the strength gains, as I've said, there is a myth out there that if you don't have vegan uh, protein, you cannot be a bodybuilder. And I think that stuff is false. I think you have to just do things a little differently. But I think that's tenable. But I agree with you. I mean, I got the perspective that like the Tennessee Titans were going to be like the world champions for 10 years in a row simply because 14 of their members went vegan. Like it was definitely very, very selectively placed on the agenda, but I mean, look,
0: well, and they knew, Whatever. and they knew what they were. They knew their audience. I mean, the whole thing with the urologist was—I I mean, yes. it was over the top. But that being said, that and and the whole premise of my series here is really because I do think that, despite the way they went about it, they have a lot of important things to say. And sure. well, you know, the reason I, I I wanted you here was really to get at some of those core issues in the last fifteen minutes. And and hey. you know, I think that a lot of you know, I live in a state in Colorado where it seems like, you know, we, my family in particular, who does not own a dog is like one of maybe three families in the whole state that doesn't own a dog. And we're ostracized for that, uh, you know, (laughs) but uh, it seems like, you know, if you want to get people riled up in Colorado, mention the fact that dogs are eaten as, you know, food somewhere. And yet, if I turn the question around and say, well, what did you eat for dinner last night? Um, people seem to have no qualms at all uh, about eating other animals. They anthropomorphize animals and choose which animals have value over others. And I've always found that a little bit strange. So tell me a little bit about your journey, Peter. I know that, uh, I mean, listen, we grew up together. We, we ate meat. And, and, and your sort of awakening to this change came because of your basically relationship to a dog. So, so tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, in fairness, you've probably forgotten, but I was vegetarian at other parts of my life too. Um, So even before I had a dog, um, I went vegetarian in my teens um, for a couple of years and then again in my early 20s. So I did it twice unsuccessfully. And back in those days, keep in mind, being vegetarian was a completely different thing to being vegetarian today. I mean, I raised my two kids as vegan now and it's like it's really, it's it's really not difficult for them to get food in just about any location. Whereas being vegetarian, um, you know, you're talking 35 years ago was very challenging. It was, it was really hard. Yeah. It was forget, forget about being vegan. It was incredibly difficult. Um, let alone in the house, you know, where we were in a house with meat eaters, but anyway, so I, I grew up and I, I have always felt, um, empathic towards this struggle. Um, and, um, the truth is, um, it, it, I remember my earliest thing about it was when I was watching a documentary on cattle. Uh, it wasn't even an animal perspective documentary, but I very vividly remember when I was 13 or 14 watching this thing about prairie oysters. Do you know what prairie oysters are? Of course. I live in Colorado. There you go. So I remember watching how prairie oysters were – Literally taken from the cow while they were live, which are the bull's testicles, were just chopped off without anesthetic. And I remember being absolutely horrified by this. I just thought it was the worst thing I'd ever seen. And they, it was it was amazing to me that it was a documentary on the cattle industry, and you could literally see the pain that the animals were in before and after, and just everybody sort of laughing about it. And this is and really I remember that the documentary was about like who could eat prairie oysters, like how gross that is, right? Because it's just like that. That's what it is. But at the time, I was just devastated by this. And I just thought this was the worst thing in the world. So I said, that's it. I'm not going to eat meat anymore. But anyway, I went on these journeys a couple of times and it was harder. But I definitely switched over in my 30s after living with a dog for uh, five or six years and realizing you know, sort of making the connection that you did. Um, this idea that I don't understand if we love animals in one way, how we can eat animals the other way. And it just seemed to me that uh, it didn't really make any sense. The distinction didn't 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 seem to uh, be very logical to me. And the more I saw some of the problems that we were having in the way we treated animals, uh, the more I felt that I had an obligation to do something about it. But the the reason I went vegan, I started off vegetarian. And that was sort of a personal choice. Um, and then I I became vegan um, in my 30s, uh, about four or five years after I went vegetarian. And the reason I did that was simply, I mean, it was a twofold reason. One, I couldn't see any logical distinction between dairy and meat. To me, it was all the same once you got down to the brass tacks. And then the second was as I became sort of a speaker in the movement, I felt that I was being hypocritical if I was continuing to, uh, to use any of these animals. So I became, uh, the more I got into it, the more I sort of got, um, um, you know, lured into the idea of being vegan. And, uh, that's, that's the way it happened. And I've never gone back.
0: So is there, um, a way to concisely kind of, you know, sum up for people who, you know, are meat eaters? I mean, if if you were going to make the argument for a meat eater to care, uh, how would you do so?
1: So the hardest thing to do is to make someone care when they don't care. Um, That I've learned that I've been doing this for a long time. Um, It's very, very hard. But but the one thing I would say is this. Um, Generally speaking, Um, what I found when I speak to people uh, who are, who are not, uh, vegan and, and to be honest, I don't do that very often unless they really ask me to, I don't stick my face out there and tell you, you should do this or do that. Um, if you want to come listen to my podcast by all means, but, but the, the concise way to do it is to say this as, as bad as you think it might be on farms today, it's, it's usually many, many times worse. In fact, the truth of the matter is, what I say is any use of animals today, just about, if you think it's a certain way, it's usually many, many times worse than you imagine it to be. And that's just the more I investigate a certain thing, the more things I discover that are really, really troublesome about the way we treat animals. And all of that comes down to one thing. There is a profit motive behind the using of animals that is at the core of the way we use animals today. And anytime that profit motive runs into any concern about the animals for well-being, the profit motive will overwhelm the concern every single time with like literally no restraint, just about. And as a result, anything that you think as like a person who cares about animals, anything that you think is being done to restrain harm against animals is probably not being done. So that's the only way I can explain it to people. I can't make people care. In fact, I used to say a good example of this was our father, right? So I used to say that our father was a useless case. It made no sense. And I don't say that to be mean to my father. I actually respected his position. My father's position was very simple. He just didn't care. He didn't care. He didn't care at all. So there was no way that I was going to make him care. He didn't care about animals. He thought they were a different species from us, right? They are a different species. But he didn't think that our uh, extension of moral concern should go to animals. And I respected that. He just didn't care, and I couldn't make him care. That was the end of it. I only try to talk to people who do care. If you do care about animals and you think that things are being done to protect them, you're wrong. They're not. And as a result, more animals are being harmed in more terrible ways than you can possibly imagine that's all I can tell
0: you so there are a lot of people who do care and there are a lot of people who try to take a middle ground for example there are people who hunt and and say look I, I, I only eat the meat that I catch and and kill in a, in a way that I consider to be humane uh, there are other people who will say look I, I know where I source my meat from I go to the farm I, I, I you know I take from these farmers who uh, who I see how they treat their animals Um What would you say to those people who who make those arguments?
1: So there's a couple of things I would say to those people who make those arguments. Um, A lot, actually. The, The first is, I find that argument made an amazing amount of times by people who do not actually follow through with that actual ethic of living. I mean, there may be people out there who only eat the hunt, might they hunt, but it's amazing how often they'll slip into a McDonald's when they're on the road, right? It's just like, I've heard that a lot. I've heard from friends of mine who only eat free range organic, but they slip out of that the minute anything else happens. It's not as if they practice vegetarian or veganism when they're at a, say, work event, you know? So it's like... So, one, I just don't believe it. I don't believe there are people like that. And if they are, they constitute a very, very small minority of people who claim to act in that particular way. So that's number one. Um, Number two, I, I would say, like you know, I could talk, you're raising two different issues, the hunting versus the ethical sourcing. If you're talking about the ethical sourcing, the problem with ethical sourcing is not at the level of the people who actually do it. I actually think the people who try to do things in an ethical sourcing way have reduced a lot of the problems that exist on industrial farms. And we haven't spoken about industrial farms um, in any depth, but we're talking industrial farms produce about 99% of the meat, dairy, and eggs that are eaten in the U S every day. So th- that's 99% of the problem. So if you want to talk about that 1% of these small organic free range farms, it is true. That you are dealing with a better source of situation, or as I like to say, you're dealing with a better source of prison. That's really what it is. Either you believe that animals should be treated in a way that affords them some measure of equality, or you don't. If you prefer to be on the spectrum that says, "Well, I don't think they should be deserve that level of freedom," and I do think we're morally entitled to eat them. Okay, I understand that. And you have decided to have them in a better sort of condition or prison or whatever you want to call it. And there's no question that these farms are a lot better in relative terms to the industrial farms that constitute the 99%. So, again, my response to that is twofold. Morally, I think your choice is questionable, but that's just my moral position, Then when I look further, I say, okay, well, what is it we're actually accomplishing with these small farms? These small farms cannot provide the level of meat, dairy, and eggs that people actually want to consume. So to me, as 1% of the equation, they're a relatively small and virtually irrelevant part of that equation. And as a result, I don't really think much about them at all. My problem at the moment is with the 99% and to show that these methods of continuing to do things are unsustainable. For the people who uh, wish to you know, have this idea that somehow we can produce um, enough meat, dairy, and eggs in these small farm ways, I think they're delusional. I don't think that's possible. I think that's simply people with enough money to spend on these things sort of entertaining their own moral Choices. So, I mean, I don't, I don't really have a lot to say to them. I, I, I think if that's what they want to do, that's what they're entitled to do. But I don't think that they're making a choice that really changes the dynamic for animals in any sort of meaningful way. And frankly, nor does it really respect the animals in a way that makes any um, long term sense. Because I'll just say this: just take one of those uh, things. Like my, my, uh, my wife, as you know, comes from rural Germany, and we live in. When we are in Germany, we live in a very small farming community, and her cousin owns a free-range egg farm. Well, that free-range egg farm is beautiful. It's absolutely lovely. I've been there, and the the chickens, you know, during their egg-producing lifespan are treated like kings, but make no mistake about it. Sorry, queens, I guess. Um, it, is, it, is, it is an economic facility, and I promise you, the minute those, hegs, uh, those hens start having production layoff, they're going to be slaughtered. That will happen instantly. They will not live any sort of normal life. They will live a much shorter lifespan because it's only during their peak producing years that they can be afforded to keep around. So the, the, the machine of continuing to churn out these chickens continues to exist. So to me, there are a lot of concerns that arise regardless of the, the production mechanism. Just telling me that it's a better facility doesn't alleviate all the problems that exist.
0: All right, Peter. So I, I think we've, you know, it, it, it just seems like it's a dichotomous choice at this point. Uh, you know, you either eat meat in whatever way you choose to, or you, you know, you adopt a vegan lifestyle. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that in the world today, the vast majority of people continue to eat meat, whether or not that's sustainable in the long term, I think is not really debatable. I think it's not going to be. Uh, It's just a matter of time before meat eating is not going to be, is only going to be affordable by the very rich. But for the time being, if there are people out there who, you know, they care, but they just aren't willing to make this huge investment in terms of looking into it, knowing all the facts as well as you do, what kinds of changes can people make to, to try and diminish the impact that they have on animals, on the environment, uh, you know, I mean, without necessarily going completely vegan, which I, you know, would agree with you is probably the best thing to do, but recognizing that it's not the easiest thing to do for everyone to do. What kinds of changes would you advocate for for individuals to make?
1: So any changes are good. I'm not an all-or-nothing person, and I never have been. I'm of the view that any changes you can make. The world is changing. There's no doubt about it. Um, I grew up in a world, you know, which isn't that long ago, really. I mean, I grew up 35 years ago. I'd never met a vegan in my whole life. I mean, my kids are the first vegans in their school. And just think about that. Like, You have generations of new children going through. There, There are people around them not only the kids the families that never met vegans and now my kids go and interact with other kids the change happens incrementally in fact if you really want I me mean, to tell you like what i thought was the most important thing about game changers it's just the existence the idea of normalizing veganism is such a big part of what we're facing here and that is happening faster than you can imagine so the the existence of of vegan restaurants in every city that are that are no longer these like you know hippie commune places they're they're Like, haute cuisine vegan places and vegan donut shops and vegan whatever, vegan ice cream stores, all of that stuff is changing the equation already. And to me, like the the arrival of Beyond Meat and the arrival of uh, Impossible Burgers, and you know, I, I spoke at a conference not too long ago, and to me, I said, um, for all the animal law change, which I think we're having, which is very significant, um, to me, the arrival of the Impossible Burger at Burger King is as big a development anything else on the agenda, simply because I think that it's starting to normalize the equation and make veganism easier. So that's what I think is number one. But the the obvious answer to what you're saying is very simple. Eat less meat, chicken and dairy. That's what you and fish, to be honest, fish is as big a problem as anything that's going on in the world today. If you stop eating these things or reduce them, uh, you know, I used to say to people, "Okay, you want to do something, go go vegan for breakfast vegan for breakfast every day. It's the easiest meal to go vegan because most of what you're eating anyway is vegan. But just say, I'm going to go vegan five days out of seven. I'm just, I'm not going to eat butter. I'm going to switch to margarine. I'm going to use almond milk or soy milk or oat milk or whatever milk I want to use. Just change these things gradually. And I have lots of friends who've done that. They've gone slowly to vegetarian three days a week, four days a week. Now they're fully vegetarian, starting to try vegan. Like, I didn't go vegan in a day. It it is, you know, it is, it is something you can do incrementally. That's number one. Number two, if you really want to make a difference, first of all, support animal advocacy organizations like ours. We're, we're trying to make change at the legislative level where things are really slow. And the funny thing is most people who aren't even vegan, who do love animals, are willing to support better laws for animals because the legislature hasn't caught up in most jurisdictions with the will of the people. So support these at organizations. Stop giving your money just to animal shelters, which are wonderful institutions, but only help individual dogs here and there. And try to help some of these organizations that are trying to make a difference on the long-term stage. We face a very tough financial battle in terms of the extent to which we are fighting against organizations with, you know, infinite budgets um, to actually resist the type of legal changes that we think are essential. So in terms of making change, you can make change as incrementally as you want. My personal change took many years to to happen. Not every kid gets to be a vegan overnight like my kids, um, you know, because they have parents who are and because, we've educated them. But it, it it can happen and you can you can make slow changes. Even if you never become fully vegan, your own personal reduction of meat eating egg and dairy will be, you know, helpful in the long run.
0: Well, Peter Sankoff is a professor and associate dean at the University of Alberta, Faculty of Law. He's an author of several books, uh, many of which uh, are related to animal law. He has a podcast called Paw and Order and is on the board of directors of Animal Justice, which is an advocacy group working to enhance the law in relation to animals. Most importantly, he's my younger brother. And uh, thank you so much, Peter, for uh, coming on the podcast today and uh, discussing this uh, really important issue. My pleasure. And now it's time for Reels for Wheels. And uh, this is going to be the final Reels for Wheels for this season, which means that my friend and colleague, Janetta Iwanaki, is back once again. And uh, because this is the final episode, we are once again going to dedicate this one, as we did last season, to movies that we suggest you should watch during recovery rides. Uh, Up to this point, as we did in the first season, we have restricted our conversations to one movie each, and those movies have been fairly high intensity, action packed, and generally short on story for the most part. Uh, Movies that you can watch without having to concentrate too much and without having to worry too much about what you're doing on the trainer because the movie doesn't require that much of your attention. For recovery rides, however, both of us feel that it's that kind of ride that you can actually dedicate a little more of your attention to what's on the screen. And so in these cases, we feel that uh, it calls for different kinds of films. And so for the last episode of the year, once again... We're going to alternate back and forth and give you a few suggestions for what we think you should consider when doing a recovery ride. Welcome once again, Janetta. Thank you uh, so much for joining me for what I consider to have been a very entertaining and successful season of Reels for Wheels.
2: Thanks. Uh, Glad to be back and always love talking about recovery.
0: All right. So uh, why don't we uh, do a little bit of back and forth and why don't you start with your first suggestion for a uh, suitable movie to be watching on the trainer while doing a recovery ride.
2: Yeah, so this is uh, a very recent film actually called Parasite, um, currently up for uh, several Oscars. Um, And this is probably one of the best movies I've seen in the last year. Um, The only reason I would recommend this for a recovery ride over any other kind of ride um, is because of the subtitles. So it's uh, a South Korean movie and uh, as such has subtitles. It's got an entirely Korean cast. Um, But this movie is just absolutely phenomenal and engrossing and just really, really interesting. The general concept is it's about a family, essentially of con artists, um, who are poor, always kind of trying to make ends meet, and uh, happen to run into this very wealthy family and decide that they're going to insert themselves into this very wealthy family's life um, and uh, sort of live off of this family, um, and hence the name Parasite. Uh, But it has got a really hysterically funny sense of humor that comes across despite all language barriers. Um, It's also got some really interesting twists and turns to it and sort of goes from everything from comedy to heist film to... um, suspense and even a little bit of horror along the way and ends up in a really uh, unexpected and uh, sort of heart-wrenching place. Um, So it's spectacular.
0: Yeah. And I've heard nothing but positive things about this movie. I know the director has also done other films that are uh, apparently well worth seeking out. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned Snowpiercer as uh, his first film. Yep. Um, and then I think he's done something else that was, was – am I incorrect in saying he's been nominated for an Oscar once before? I, that might be incorrect. I
2: believe he has been, but um, I honestly don't quite recall off the top yeah. of my head. But yeah, um, Bong Joon-ho is the director. And he's known for making these sort of t- slightly twisted different takes on genre films. Yeah. And this is uh, an interesting way where he's gone into um, a, a different direction but still really gets into um, some of these deep issues on – Um, society and ethics, uh, culture, as well as the the split between the haves and the have-nots, which was a big part of Snowpiercer as well. So it's it's a fascinating film, really pulls you in. Um, I highly recommend it. The acting is just phenomenal as well.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, for my first uh, suggestion for a recovery uh, film, I have The American, which is a George Clooney film that uh, was one of the last films that he made. Um he plays a uh, assassin which is a common theme in many of the movies we talk about. <laughs> um after surviving an ambush uh, beside a remote Swedish lake, uh, this uh, hitman goes to Rome, contacts uh, his controlling agent Pavel, who sends him to uh, an Abruzian town with the warning no friends. He takes one look at the town and goes instead to nearby Castelvecchio, where he poses as a photographer and waits for his control to take care of the Swedish problem. But while waiting, his control gives him a job, constructing a special weapon for a Belgian assassin. He converses with the town's priest, spends the occasional night with Clara, a local prostitute who he becomes romantically involved in, and after the priest calls him out on his profession and the Swedes get a line on his whereabouts, he starts to wonder how and if it's time to get out. I found The American to be a beautifully made film. Uh, There's not a lot of dialogue, and the ending is not at all what you would expect for uh, this kind of movie. It uh, does not wrap things up in a tidy little bow the way uh, many uh, American-type movies do. And uh, I thought George Clooney was great. I I really enjoyed the story, and uh, despite the fact that this movie didn't get rave reviews or a huge box Mm -hmm. office when it came out, I really recommend it. It's a beautiful film. I mean, the Italian countryside just looks spectacular as a setting, and uh, I really enjoyed the... uh, performances by actors and actresses that I've never seen before for the most part and uh, thought the story was uh, really uh, intriguing and kept me uh, quite interested.
2: Yeah, so this is one I haven't seen yet, but I have to admit that uh, a recovery ride through the Italian countryside sounds like a pretty good idea. Right. we'll so definitely have yeah. to check it out.
0: Yeah, excellent. All right, so what's uh, your second suggestion?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit, and I know we usually recommend films, um, but actually I have a handful of uh, really great short Um, Series that I've really enjoyed, particularly for recovery rides this year. So the first one is called Russian Doll. This is a Netflix series um, that is, uh, if you took uh, Groundhog Day, made it weirder (laughs) (laughs) and a little more twisted, uh, that would probably get you to Russian Doll. Um, It's a really fantastic short series. It stars uh, Natasha Lyonne as the main character. And uh, the writers and directors um, have been mostly women um, and actually Amy Poehler was heavily involved in developing this film which gives you a sense of some of that uh, sense of humor that goes to it and even though it's this bit of a dark and twisted series uh, it actually has a lot of hopefulness and um, sort of faith in humanity that really pulls it through and how people really are connected to one another and the basic story is the woman um, who stars in it, Natasha Lyonne dies on her birthday after this sort of wild birthday party that she has, does a lot of drugs, has a lot of sex Um, unexpectedly dies looking for her cat, and then reappears back at her birthday again.
0: uh, It sounds like happy death day.
2: A little bit like that, but it's really intriguing. and The more you watch it, the more it gets into uh, some bits and pieces of moral philosophy and what does it mean to be a good person and live a good life. And she, uh, along the way, makes a friend who is in a similar situation, um, which makes it even more interesting along the way. Um, And what this all means is all part of the question. Um, So unfortunately, there's only one season of it out, and it's a pretty short series. But uh, for me on Recovery Rides, it was great because I just wanted to keep watching until the next episode. And so yeah. watching it only during recovery rides was a great way to get through the series.
0: And how many episodes were there?
2: Uh, I believe there were, I don't remember actually. Let me see.
0: How many dolls have mm-hmm. to find out. All right.
2: I think there were eight, but okay. Not entirely so sure. a
0: reasonable, a reasonable amount. Yeah. And each one was like an hour, ha- half an hour, half an hour. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's short so episodes yeah.
2: too. So it's good for even quick yeah, or long rides. Yeah. You can do okay. Excellent.
0: All right. Well, for my second suggestion, I'm going back to a genre that I referred to in the last uh, episode when I talked about film noir. And this is another recent uh, uh, example of what I consider to be an excellent uh, movie that uh, shows film noir, and that is the movie Brick. Uh, this was Ryan Johnson's first movie. If you're familiar with uh, the director Ryan Johnson, you may know of some of his later works like Looper, uh, the more recent uh, Knives Out, uh, the Star Wars film, uh, one of the Star Wars films, I'm not sure which, but uh, he did uh, one of the uh, more recent reboots of the Star Wars movies. But Brick was sort of his uh, first sort of big breakout movie. Uh, it starred Joseph uh, Gordon Levitt and Lucas Haas. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays a teenager uh, who finds his former girlfriend Emily dead and uh, then uh, undertakes a sort of investigation along with his uh, very uh, smart, somewhat uh, reclusive friend uh, known only as Brain. Uh, to try and understand what it was that led to Emily's demise. He has a few clues to go on, including uh, some uh, words that she left him with, including brick and pin uh, that Emily used uh, to try and convey who it was that killed her. So, uh, like all good film noir, it has some incredibly uh, complicated dialogue that uh, you would never hear normal high schoolers speak (laughs) with, which is part of the charm of this movie because it really does put the private eye and the femme fatale, uh, as well as the typical film noir um, dialogue, into high school. And the first time I saw it, it was a little bit jarring because I wasn't expecting the dialogue Mm -hmm. to be like that, but. This movie is tremendous, and I, I really enjoyed it. Lucas Haas has a great uh, role as uh, the uh, powerful teenage drug dealer, The Pin. And as Brendan unravels the motives why Emily was killed and plots his revenge on everyone involved, uh, the story becomes uh, really, really entertaining and uh, this is the kind of movie that you can watch several times and pick up something different each time because it's uh, it's a very uh, convoluted story, but uh, very interesting, very entertaining, and I highly enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, certainly. And I remember seeing this when it first came out and thinking, this director is going places, and uh, he certainly has. He so it's been fun has. to see how that's evolved over yeah. time.
0: Yeah. Okay, so what have you got next?
2: Uh, next up is another limited series. So uh, I'm going to recommend The Mandalorian. Um, Speaking of
0: Star Wars. Yeah,
2: we've talked a bit about Star Wars here and there. um, But I uh, actually think that this is the most innovative that Star Wars has been probably since the original trilogy. Um, And a few things about this series that I think really lend itself well to uh, recovery rides. Um, So it's got the heart and soul of a spaghetti Western. um, And if you anywhere have ever liked Clint Eastwood or anything like that, like it really pulls you in. It's got beautiful Western type vistas, even though it takes place on multiple (laughs) other planets. Um, And uh, the characters um, are really fascinating. Um, The main character, the Mandalorian, played by Pedro Pascal, you actually never see his face and yet he manages to convey huge amounts of emotion um, through just his body language and his voice and that's actually pretty impressive in and of itself Um, the other uh, actors in the film are excellent as well Um, in particular Carl Weathers um, who plays a bounty hunter sort of wrangler uh, is really fantastic you might remember him from way back in the day in the Rocky films of course um but he brings a, a sense of humor to his role that's really interesting. Um, Gina Carano um, of UFC fame, um, who also uh, starred in Haywire, um, is great and plays a really physical role of a uh, ex-army veteran um, who's a fighter. And then, of all people, Werner Herzog shows up. Oh, really? Uh, as a former imperial uh, officer. Um, brings a real intensity to his role and apparently uh, was a little bit obsessed I think most everybody knows now that baby Yoda is a character in this yes he became obsessed with the puppet because it was so darn cute
0: <laughs> and apparently
2: he would hold it and play with it in, in an unhealthy takes. way <laughs> I know,
0: will love him and hug him and call him George
2: <laughs> you know if Werner Herzog wants a puppet yeah. Werner Herzog gets a puppet right um, but I think it really brings um, you know such a different take on the Star Wars films it's not bound by some of the same intensity and in the characters that you have from that original trilogy. So they can take it in very different and interesting directions. Um, and yeah, it's eight episodes, um, not too long, but each episode has got just kind of the right type of pace to it where it's interesting. There's a lot going on, but not such high intensity that you feel like you have to pedal too fast.
0: And there's another season coming out,
2: correct? Uh, so. Theoretically at some point. But yeah,
0: that's what I've heard. Yeah,
2: just the first season yeah. so far.
0: Right. My son enjoyed it, so and he's a big Star Wars fan. So, yeah. All right. We'll take that one uh, on the list. Um, my next suggestion is... Um, not going to be for everyone. It's uh, a film by Yorgos Lentimos, uh, <laughs> a name that I just love to say. Uh, he is a Greek director known for a couple of Oscar winners. Uh, one of them was uh, Death of a Sacred Deer, but that's not the film I'm going to suggest. The one I'm going to suggest is The Lobster, uh, which starred Colin Farrell, Rachel Weiss, Leah Sidhu, and Ben Winshaw, as well as John C. Riley. Um, this is a love story set in a dystopian near future where single people are arrested and transferred to a very creepy hotel. There, they are obliged to find a matching mate in 45 days, and if they fail, they are transformed into an animal of their choosing and then released into the woods. This is um, a darkly hilarious movie. Um, I... I, I was I didn't know what to expect when I when mm-hmm. I watched it, uh, but it I was surprised at how funny it was. Yeah. Uh, but you have to have a dark sense of humor to appreciate the humor uh, it's because it's twisted. It's, yeah. twisted. <laughs> uh, it's also uh, you know it's 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 out there. So it, if you're expecting just a regular sort of Hollywood movie, you're not gonna like this. It's uh, this true. this is a movie that you know you have to appreciate film. You have to appreciate sort of like weird stories, and you have to be open to the idea that it's not going to follow a typical you know movie kind of story it also has a very ambiguous ending which uh, could easily you know be interpreted by the viewer as one of three things and and that's okay uh, this is the kind of movie that definitely leaves you with a lot to think about and sort of stays with you for several days afterwards and that's the kind of film that I really enjoy watching and again this is one where you want headphones because the dialogue is hilarious and uh, <laughs> yeah, you sp- yeah. It, yeah you don't want to miss it you don't want to miss anything and it, it was really good I I thought all of the actors were fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed this film, and I'm looking forward to seeing Death of a Sacred Deer because uh, I want to see more of his movies.
2: Yeah, and I think it's... One of the things that I th- found so fascinating about it was, you're right, it is absolutely hilarious, but all of the actors are so deadpan. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's that sort of really interesting Well, lack of emotion
0: is a big it's part a big of part this of it. movie. And, uh, the and it's way crucial that, to it, the story. Exactly. Line, yeah, exactly. And I, I wasn't even sure... I, I'm still not sure I haven't having just seen it only a few days ago I'm still not entirely sure what you know the whole messaging was in that movie um, and, and yeah. I'm still pondering on it and yeah. that's why I'm recommending it because it really is one of these movies that makes you think and yeah. I, I like that about a good film so.
2: yeah and I actually think I need to watch it again just to because I've been thinking about it since the last time I watched it now I'm curious what I'll think about it
0: a second time a yeah second time absolutely yeah do you have another uh, recommendation
2: yeah so uh, one last series um, this is is a series uh currently on hbo um sounds like it may be a single season um because they wanted it specifically to be a very self-contained story and this is watchmen
0: Oh, yes. Uh, I've I've heard so much about it. it. I don't get it. I don't get Uh, HBO. And I I have to say, you know, we've talked a
2: free trial to watch. Well, we've talked
0: many times about my (laughs) disdain for like comic book stuff. And I even read I tried reading the Watchmen graphic novel and it did not do it for me. But what I have heard they have done with the story and how they have use this story to to tell uh, a, you know, very a very modern yeah,
2: take on I'm
0: really things. fascinated so yeah. so give us your take yeah
2: So um it's very interesting so as you mentioned it is uh related I would say to a graphic novel so watchmen the graphic novel um Originally uh, came out in the 1980s, um, was relevant to a lot of current issues at that time. Um, was eventually made into a movie later by Zack Snyder that was eh, yeah. okay, sort of mixed reviews. Um, and because of all that, I'd read the graphic novel before. I thought it was really interesting, but never really was you know particularly huge fan or obsessed with it or anything like that. But I do have that as an anchor point, even though I haven't read it probably since college. Um, And the series came out and I actually didn't start watching it right away because it wasn't something that really sounded appealing to me. But I kept hearing these amazing reviews about it and finally decided I would check it out one day when I was doing a recovery ride on the trainer. And uh, sure enough, it's just fantastic. Um, So what they've done is it takes place in really modern day, although in this alternate sort of reality that uh, occurs in the graphic novel. Um, But the, because of that it's actually really a follow-up to the events in the original graphic novel Hmm. Um, and some of this many of the same characters come back in a different context Um, but it's really a standalone story that's about if that world continued what would it be like 20 years later Hmm. or really 30 years later Um, and it's Really fascinating. So in this dystopian future, in this sort of alternate world, um, the police uh, wear masks so that they uh, won't necessarily be targeted for being police officers. Um, And there's a huge amount of racial tension that still goes on um, in this country, really tied in the roots um, of everything that's happened in our reality. And it's about a woman who by um, it works as a police officer and therefore is a masked person, um, but a detective. And so detectives actually wear it rather than a plain mask like regular police officers. They wear a costume, essentially. So it's sort of in between being a police officer and being a superhero. And she uh, dives into this world as Previous superheroes from the graphic novel, um, as well as this world of racial tensions, um, and really gets embroiled in that. And the story is just engrossing. The actors are phenomenal. So Regina King plays the main character, and she is just unbelievable. Cal Abar um, is her husband in this series. Um, and Yaha Abdul-Mateen, who plays him, is spectacular. Um, there's a huge twist that comes a couple episodes before the end of the series. Um, and he makes it so unbelievably all engrossing and encompassing and just fantastic. Um, It's also got Jeremy Irons playing Adrienne Veit and uh, Gene Smart who's fantastic um, as Laurie Blake. Um, So a few of those characters from the original graphics novel who come back have just got great folks playing them. So uh, I'm both very disappointed that it won't continue on but also appreciate the fact that it's such a a well-told story um but it's worth a few hours of your time
0: yeah absolutely and like i said i i like you i've heard all of these really rave reviews and a lot of uh, interesting discussion about um what it all means and and really talking about the importance of this series so yeah a, a great recommendation
2: yeah it's definitely another one that will keep you thinking long after it's done um But uh, I think some of the intensity and particularly some of the emotional nature of it um, would make it tough to do a Hmm. lot of intense work. So I think it's easier to process when you're uh, doing something more like a recovery ride.
0: All right. Well, for my last recommendation, uh, I'm going to also go with a series, and this is the Netflix series The Spy. Uh, the Spy stars Sasha Baron Cohen uh, who dramatizes the real life accomplishments of the Mossad agent Eli Cohen who went on to infiltrate the highest uh, ranks of uh, both the military government and uh, civil society of Syria back in the 1960s and really had a lot to do with the ability of Israel to uh, be able to stave off the very threatening um, plans that Syria had to try and uh, defeat Israel um, many times during that decade. Um, I was astonished. I, I knew that Sacha Barak Cohen had the acting chops, but I was astonished at his performance in this series. Uh, this is not a fast-moving series. This is not a high-action type of, uh, you know, show uh, at all. Uh, he is a spy in every sense of the word of spying. It uh, is not a lot of tricks and a lot of gadgets and a lot of car chases, but rather just the everyday operations of a, of a man who is trying to uh, infiltrate uh, the government of a foreign country. And along the way, becomes more and more wrapped up in the identity that he has assumed in Syrian society and more and more confused about who he was in Israeli society. And he's left behind a wife and children, and when he returns to visit them, uh, is conflicted as to who he actually is. And it's that element of the story that really lends this program some incredible drama you know right from the beginning uh what how it's all going to end and because it's based on you know true events uh you you, it's not very difficult to find out what's going to happen uh but uh getting from point a to point b is uh amazingly intense and i found every one of these episodes to be very dramatic very haunting and uh when it all finished up i i found myself uh better off for having watched it and definitely quite moved. It was quite an interesting show and I really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, I uh, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I have to admit I thought twice about it when I saw Sacha Baron Cohen starring in it, and uh, that's really interesting to hear that he pulls it off so well. So He
0: is, you know, the guy's got a lot of range, and I almost wonder if he didn't damage his career by being so darn good at being so funny uh, yeah. early on. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that he should be taken very seriously as a serious actor. He's probably the next one to, you know, after Tom Hanks and mm-hmm. Robin Williams and all these other comedians who moved into acting and did such a tremendous job, Mm -hmm. you watch The Spy. uh, You will be very impressed. I think he's the next one.
2: Certainly. I'll have to check it out.
0: Yeah. Well, that's uh, the end of our recommendations for films and TV series to watch uh, during your trainer rides. And it also brings to an end uh, this uh, season of Reels for Wheels. I want to take a moment to once again thank my friend and colleague, Janetta Iwanaki, who has joined me uh, for all of the uh, segments that we have recorded this year. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, tap into your encyclopedic knowledge of films. Uh, Thank you so much for helping me with this. Uh, I really, really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope these get folks through the last few frosty-cold months and (laughs) looking forward to riding outside again.
0: That's right. And with uh, spring coming up, uh, the triathlete Routard is uh, going to reappear on the next episode when uh, we'll start bringing you a travel guide of sorts to various races that can be found on the WTC's Ironman N70.3 calendar. Until then, uh, I will uh, wish you a a nice spring and summer of training, and uh, we'll be back with uh, Reels for Wheels next year. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc podcast. Hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.trydogpodcast.podbean.com. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. On the next episode of the Try Dog Podcast, Laurel Graham completed her first Ironman in Louisville last October, where I had a chance to meet her. Laurel competes in the physically-challenged athlete division, and my first encounter with her didn't go exactly the way I would have hoped it would have. In the end, though, we've become good friends, and we had a chance to talk about how able-bodied athletes can inadvertently hurt the feelings of our physically-challenged co-competitors and how we can be more sensitive towards what they collectively deal with on an ongoing basis. With the end of Reels for Wheels, the triathlete Utah will return with a review and travel guide of a race on the WTC calendar, and as always, I'll have a medical question to answer. Until then, train hard, train healthy.